Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by author David Lawrence. David is the author of the book Debunking Determinism, Robert Sapolsky, Sam Harris, and the Crusade Against Free Will. David, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chris. Can you start by talking about how you got into this conversation? You know, you're reacting currently against two popular science and philosophy authors, um, but it's a bigger conversation than just them. How did you become interested in this question, determinism versus free will? And uh, how did you end up writing this book? One day by happenstance, I picked up Sam Harris's book, Free Will. I like Sam Harris, and I usually agreed with everything he said. And on this book, I was a bit perplexed. I didn't get the arguments. I didn't agree with the conclusions. But I didn't know enough about the subject to really make an informed judgment. So I started doing some research. And that ended up with the idea for an article, which became a long article, which became a short book, which became a full-size book. So it evolved from an initial uh, perplexity in looking at uh, Harris's free will and thinking, that doesn't sound right. Those arguments don't really seem valid. What's behind all this? Is it me or do I need an education? And after having had an education, I'm still in the same place. But at least it's an educated one at this point. And can you set the stage a little bit by talking about what maybe seems obvious but probably isn't? What is determinism and what is free will? And what's the tension between them? Sure. Well, free will is the ability to form intentions, to deliberate, to make choices, to take action, and to influence reality. And that means reality can't be determined. It has to be capable of being influenced. And determinism is pretty much the opposite. Everything that happens must happen. It must happen because of the condition of prior events. And sometimes the condition is, is identified as the cosmic state, a bunch of physical states that go back to the Big Bang that roll out as they were predestined to. Sometimes it's biology and environment. That's the preferred way Sapolsky likes to refer to it. Sometimes it's uh, play on the uh, elementary level of particles. I can't move my arm forward unless all the particles obeying the laws of physics are doing that. And sometimes it's personal characteristics that Harris often refers to, parents, upbringing, economic circumstances, color of your hair. So whatever the conditions are, they determine everything that must happen. Everything's been prescripted. So I've, I read Sapolsky's book, and I never read Free Will, Sam Harris's book, but I've, I have followed him for a good amount. I've listened to his show a lot. And similarly, I mean, my, my card's on the table, I guess, Coming into reading Sapolsky's book, which I read for a book club with some friends of mine, I thought this is going to be very interesting to read. It's a, it's a rich topic. It's an interesting topic. I'm coming into it with some preconceived views, but you know, a decent amount of agnosticism too. The idea intuitively of both determinism and free will have a lot of initial plausibility to me. I don't think there's any question for me that I'm pretty heavily on the free will side, like classical libertarian free will. But it does seem like a problematic view that I, I don't know how well I could justify it. 
But it was an interesting book. But but Sapolsky's book went over a lot of experiments and a lot of review of science, uh, mm-hmm. neurological experiments and experiments about behavioral influences and all of these things. And it just occurred to me, I don't know, for the particular experiments in neuroscience and all these other experiments showing that actions correlate with brain states and that some actions can be predicted and other science findings and behavioral genetics showing how upbringing and environment can impact your decisions. None of those ever seemed particularly persuasive to me as far as determinism goes. Uh, The part of it that seems persuasive to me is Newton's law of motion, the idea of causality as this intuitive, basic scientific principle of how the universe works. And free will just doesn't seem to fit into that at all. And free will has this kind of mysterious, bizarre feeling to it. Uh, but you definitely draw, you you talk a lot about that, which I was really happy to see. I, I wanted to see a good discussion about how seriously should we take the idea of causality as a fundamental feature of reality? Yes. Is that something that's well-established in philosophy, in science, in philosophy of science or whatever? I mean, m- maybe it's not. It's not. And I mean, I, I think your answer is that it's not. So can you say something about what are some of the problems with the very idea of causation and causality, period? Well, there's problems with both uh, its meaning and whether it exists. And there's really insurmountable problems on both levels. It's an unresolved question. I mean, we can take the meaning first, if you like. There's, there's no causal theory that is capable of describing reality in the way it actually occurs in a causal sense. It stumbles. There's competing definitions. When the theory doesn't work, another theory comes along to patch the holes in the prior theory, and that creates new holes. A new theory comes along. And at the end of the day, we have a bunch of competing theories about causation, none of which accurately describe reality. That's one problem. The other problem with the meaning of causation is there's some insurmountable historical problems. You have to deal with Hume. Hume said that we don't see causation. We look around and we see regular appearances. We see the constant conjunction of events, sequences, sequences that recur. And on the basis of seeing that, we have the expectation, oh, well, they'll recur again. But Hume points out that they don't have to. There's no logical reason there there has to be a recurrence on any of these sequences. For practical purposes, we can assume that they'll repeat again, and we have to. But that doesn't mean there are any causes behind them. And for him, causes was an expectation of the mind. Now, that argument is the point of departure for all contemporary discussions on causality. There's been no successful reply to Hume. Same thing with Kant. The next problem you have to get through is Kant. Kant also took the notion of causation out of the objective world. He said, look, there's these categories of mind, and causation is a product of how our minds are structured and how it processes sense data. It's not out there in the world. And if you have a different kind of mind, the universe may not appear structured in the way it does. And so whether or not you believe in his categories or the technicalities, the question he's raising is to what extent does human nature, human biology, contribute to how the world looks? It's an open question. And then if you get through Hume and you get through Kant, you still have to deal with Bertrand Russell. This perhaps gets more to your point. In 1905, uh, Russell wrote an article, a famous article on the notion of cause. And he said that causation is a relic of a bygone age. It's not relevant to science anymore. Science isn't concerned with causal relations. He gives a number of arguments why causation makes no sense. And at the end of the day, he says, look, physics doesn't care about causation. It tracks dynamical laws of motion, systems. 
There's no causation among the parts of a system. They work together and they flow forward and they're tracked by differential equations. Science is no longer about causation. Now cut to a century later and you have a educated, knowledgeable, renowned physicist, Sean Carroll, referring to Bertrand Russell and saying, hey, I'm paraphrasing. Hey, you guys may be surprised to know it, but causation isn't a fundamental aspect of the laws of physics. It just isn't. It has practical purposes, but it's not part of the laws of physics. Now, that's disputed. Everything is disputed. But here you have physicists, in Russell's case, sort of a, a physicist in an everything, uh, a scholar in every which way, saying that causation is irrelevant to science. That's not what science studies. That's not what it cares about these days. So you have that problem. And then ultimately, you could go to physics and say, well, what does contemporary science say about it? What right now does it say about it? And then you get into quantum physics, and quantum physics is stuck between two conflicting narratives, and nobody can reconcile them. And there's 30 different schools that treat this in different ways, but basically, one of those visions is a determinist system that evolves in wave-like fashion. And that's the deterministic system. And then there's a probabilistic system. When we actually look at how the system works, take it apart and observe it, there are no waves. There is no determinism. And everything becomes probabilistic. So physics doesn't know if the universe is deterministic, which precludes free will, or probabilistic, which allows for its possibility. So at the most fundamental level, physics is saying, we don't know whether causation exists. We don't know if it governs the universe. We don't know if it exists and its scope is limited to the observations of systems that dynamically evolve from the outside versus looking and observing the systems when everything becomes probabilistic. Can you say something about how you think a probabilistic universe allows for free will? That seems to preclude it to my mind as well, but what, what am I missing? Well, if everything were probabilistic, it would preclude it. I was saying it allows for the possibility. If you have a causal chain and nothing can break that causal chain, then free will is kaput. It's out the window. You can't have it exist. A probabilistic universe is one in which, uh, it, well, it depends how you define it. If you want to say that every event is based on probabilistic activity, then we wouldn't have free will. But the point is that a probable universe allows for the possibility because it's opened the gaps in the causal chain. Okay, now, whether so, so or not free will exists is another question. But the probabilistic universe would set the groundwork for the possibility of free will. Deterministic wouldn't. Physics doesn't know which it is. So is the idea here that in a completely deterministic world, or if we're making the argument that you know science has routinely shed light on phenomenon by explaining events by what came before them and discovering causal laws or something like that. And, and a reasonable inference is that the universe down to the smallest particles and up to the largest bodies is deterministic. That leaves no room for free will. But if once we let in, okay, well, it looks like some things are probabilistic, that pushes the door ajar and gives us less reason to be confident that everything is the way that we think it is. And that opens the door for free will. Not that probability in and of itself would be how free will operates. Exactly. Determinists like Sapolsky and Harris spend a lot of time arguing against a straw man argument that probability doesn't lead to free will. It isn't the basis for free will. And that's absolutely true. No free will advocate would say, because there's a probabilistic universe, we have free will. As Harris points out, random events are random. You can't control them. 
All a probable universe does is open up the door for free will's possibility. And Sapolsky spends two chapters on randomness and chaos theory, and all of it's an irrelevant straw man. Nobody's saying that free will is based on randomness or chaos, well, except some new age gurus and so forth. But no respectable uh, free will advocate would turn to randomness and say, aha, there's randomness, therefore we have free will. It's not an argument. It's a straw man. It's certainly not worth two chapters. Is your view that determinism is definitely false with certainty or that it's highly unlikely to be true or that even if it were true somehow, we could never know it with good reasons? Or do you have some other view about determinism? Pretty much a combination of all of the above. The last thing you said is perhaps the least controversial. That having been said, it's highly controversial. That even if it were true, we could never know it? Exactly. Because all determinist claims are contradictory. Yeah, can you say can you say something about performative contradictions and what what that concept is? Sure. The bigger conceptual way of saying it is self-defeating claims. Performative contradictions is one kind of self-defeating claim. But right here and now we're talking about things and I'm thinking things and you're thinking things and all of that is illusory for determinists. Determinism says that we don't control our thoughts. We don't control what we believe. It's all generated by causal forces. Physical events are giving you the thoughts that you're thinking right now and me. So we think things are true, right? Well, under determinism, what we think is true is a thought that was generated by physical forces. We were predestined to think what we think. So we think determinism is true. Okay. You were predestined to think that. You think free will is true. Okay. You are predestined to think that those thoughts and our beliefs are not based on truth according to determinist doctrine. They're based on the play of physical forces that go back to the Big Bang. So what determinism does is it undermines any rational basis for our beliefs because they're all attributable to physical events. And of course, that includes determinism. The claim that determinism is true under determinist doctrine. It's just a compelled belief, just a reflection of causal forces. So you can't undermine truth, the basis of belief, reason, if all of that is just causal effects. There are no truth claims, including the truth claim that determinism is true. So it's like saying nobody knows anything. You say, well, but you're saying you know something. Or you say everything is relative. That's a self-defeating claim because it's an absolute unqualified claim. Everything is relative. It doesn't change. It's not relative to anything. It's a proposition that says everything is relative. The most, uh, the most criticized philosophy based on the self-defeating concept is postmodernism. And that's an accepted critique. Postmodernism is the claim in some form or manner that truth doesn't exist. It's a power play. It's manipulation. It's a way to dominate people. Okay? And... Dozens of critics of postmodernism say, hold on a second, that's self-defeating. How can you say there's no truth when that's a truth? Trying to dominate me? (laughs) Are you trying to control me? If there's no truth, you can't claim, as postmodernism does, it's true that there's no truth. And that's the same contradiction that the determinist faces, uh, except that they don't face this, because unfortunately the, the point is not a part of the current dialogue. So when you say all of our thoughts are compelled, That was compelled. I believe determinism is true. And why I believe it, if you're a determinist following determinist doctrine, 
I believe determinism is true because I was predestined to believe that. Because physical forces cause me to believe determinism is true. I don't believe it because it's true. Truth is based on compelled beliefs generated by physical forces. That's what determinist doctrine says. And I can't investigate what's true because all of those beliefs and those procedures are likewise just whatever physical forces demand that we think. So it undermines the credibility of all truth claims to say all of our, our, all of our thoughts are predetermined. I don't control anything I think. I have can, nothing to do with what I think. Can we make a distinction between saying that it radically undermines the credibility versus, on the one hand, versus it's a literal contradiction? It seems to me more, more the former, that you could by chance happen to be right in espousing some causally predetermined view and happen to be right. You might be causally predetermined and happen to say that the moon revolves around the sun. You have right. no good reason for believing that, but you're not literally contradicting yourself. You're just, you don't have good reasons to believe it. Or I don't know, may, maybe you do. Maybe you do have good reasons to believe it. I mean, can you be causally compelled to believe something with good reason? If you look at a red wall, it seems to me you'll be causally compelled to believe that it's red. Well, but, this is the rabbit hole of determinism. That's a belief that was also determined. Oh, well, causes make us believe things that happen to correspond to what's really true. You can't say that with any credibility if you're a determinist, because that belief itself was generated by physical forces. I agree with so, that. I'm just wondering if, if it's radically undermining versus being a literal contradiction. Like saying, if I assert nobody makes assertions, that seems to me to be a literal contradiction. I've, I've just made an assertion and claimed that no one makes assertions. So I've contradicted myself. But mm -hmm. this kind of performative contradiction or, or self, I, it seems more self-undermining than self-defeating, I guess is my point. What do well, you think we, about that? It, it, well, it, it, it's the same kind of claim. And it's the same kind of self-defeating. Um, but I think the bigger point you're making is true, which is that we can, we can irrationally say we are determined. There's no rational basis to say that if you follow determinist principles. That's why it's self-defeating. It's undermining the basis for truth claims. And yet it's the truth claim. It's like saying there are no truths. That's a self-defeating claim because you're undermining your own ability to say nothing is true when you say nothing is true and make a truth claim, because it's also saying that there are no truth claims. So that's the self-defeatingness of it. You're also making a, a good point, which is that, but wait a second, you could have a self-defeating claim and it still might turn out to be right. And the answer to that is, okay, you could be a broken clock that's right twice a day. That's what you'd be, and you could never know it. That should be small comfort to a determinist. Well, it's, it, it's, it's no comfort because the issue is totally ignored, and it can't be, because it goes right to the heart of the legitimacy of determinist doctrine. But you won't find it mentioned in Sapolsky's book, and you won't find it mentioned in Harris's book, and you won't find it mentioned in popular discussions on the There's internet and podcasts. Philosopher Mike Humer, who's been on this show a few times, is a, an advocate of free will and has and he's a well-published, respected philosopher, and he's, he's written an article essentially on self-defeat arguments and contradictory arguments for free will, and has basically reported that he just can't get it published, that referees always push it back and accuse him of playing word games and stuff. And he's like, oh, it's, it's a legitimate argument. I don't know why it won't get, but like, he is a well-published author, so he's, it's not just this one thing that he can't get through. So I, I don't know. Why do you think that this line of argument just doesn't make the grade in popular or scholarly discussions. It probably does with philosophers. I think philosophers take this kind of stuff seriously, but 
the rest mm-hmm. of us maybe not so much well humor i know his his work and he's terrific and he's the only guy i've ever heard to confront a determinist with this argument that it's self-defeating yeah he debated sapolsky recently he's debated sapolsky and in a 10-minute opener or however long it was, he threw out a number of arguments against determinism, one of which was it's contradictory. It's self-defeating. Unfortunately, when it got to Sapolsky's time to answer, these 10 minutes of accumulated criticisms you know, were piling up, and Sapolsky didn't go into that one. He didn't mention it. He didn't respond to it. And he can be excused for it because it was in a barrage of criticisms, and he had to juggle everything he, he registered. But but humor is Michael humor, right? Correct. Yeah, he's the only one I've ever heard in any kind of popular forum raise the issue of the fact that every determinist claim is contradictory. So bravo. I wrote him an email and said, I've never heard anybody say this in popular podcast. Bravo. So and he and he knows and studies that stuff. And you're right, it's more prevalent among his crowd because he's a professional philosopher by trade who has entered into the popular discourse and brought some stuff that isn't normally a part of that discussion. Hey, everybody, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a minute to thank everybody so much for listening to my show. This has really been a dream come true for me to be able to speak with scholars that I admire and read books every week that I'm always excited to read. This is still a small show, still a new show, still growing. And I appreciate everyone listening so much. If you want to help me grow my show, the simplest thing you can do is to write a review, just a short review, a sentence or two on Apple Podcasts, or just recommend it to a friend. So I'm just reaching out to you to beg you humbly on my knees to please do that. I'm going to try not to bug you too much about it, but here I am bugging you. Anyway, back to the show. Can you say something about what you believe are the problems that come up with morality and ethical truth and evaluation with determinism and maybe distinguish between does it give us reason to doubt determinism versus does it give us reason to fear its advocacy or even if it's true? I don't think it's a separate argument against determinism. The question is, if we are determined, if we have no control over our thoughts and behavior, can there be morality? And the answer is clearly Clearly, there can't be. I mean, we can't be responsible for actions that we don't control, that we can't prevent, that we didn't consent to. Under determinism, we're no responsible, no more responsible for our own action than Vladimir Putin's actions, because nobody controls what they say or do. We have no control over our behavior. So how can we be responsible? That's not what responsibility means. So determinists and compatibles get around this by redefining responsibility and redefining free will in a way that, that, that doesn't resemble anything like what people use the words for. And so, okay, you can substitute faux versions of free will and make them compatible with determinism, but nothing gets around the obvious point that you can't be responsible for actions that you didn't control, you didn't originate, and you couldn't prevent. So that's, that, that's the issue, and Sapolsky and Harris try and get around it by proposing things that require free will. Sapolsky says, well, you know, the fact that we're determined, I'm paraphrasing, um, we still have to take broken cars off the street so they don't hurt people, right? We have to either refix them or retire them to the garage. Just because we're determined 
doesn't mean we shouldn't do that. And the response is, hold on a second, who's doing that? Who's deciding what cars are working and what aren't and whether you're going to fix it or not? And who's doing the work? Suddenly, somebody can control their behavior to fix a broken car or can make the judgment that that car should be retired to the garage. Suddenly, you're in a free will universe, Sapolsky. What happened? I thought we were all determined. So he and Harris are con- and, and most determinists or all determinists are constantly switching back and forth from the world's determined to propositions that require we have free will, that require we control our actions. How else are we going to take a broken car off the road? How else are we going to know if a car is broken? These are concepts that require judgments. They're not part of the laws of physics. They don't have any effect under determinism. And yet suddenly we're given prescriptions by Harris and Sapolsky that can only be possible if we have free will. Is it possible to be a determinist and be a passive observer of your behavior and simply hope that it all works out and and that that describes kind of the project they're engaged in, even if they don't describe it themselves that way? So so if you're passively observing everything that happens, how would you be responsible for what you're doing or behaving or saying or thinking? You wouldn't be. I think I'm responding more to the idea of like, why are they writing these books? Why are they advocating things that require agency? And there's something really appealing as a free will believer in a good knockdown logical argument that cuts the rug out from underneath everything. But there's also something that I, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I'm skeptical of mm-hmm. it or that I've got second thoughts about it. I probably share a common sense view that like, I don't know, that kind of argument, it feels like it's cheating somehow. I'm not saying that it is. I actually don't think that it is, but it doesn't feel satisfying. And I, I want to be fair to the determinists. So I don't know, is there is there some way to rescue their project of advocacy as just saying, you know, I mean, they're determined, they're going about their business, they're they're passively the observers in their body and their in their actions, and they're hoping things go well. And it may be the case that certain books are part of the causal influence in how people end up taking broken cars off the road. Well, the self-defeating point is just one aspect of why determinism is flawed. I mean, we've talked about another, the fact that causation can't be defined, and and it's the fundamental premise on which determinism is based. We can add to that that matter, nobody knows what matter is. Now, matter is what causation would work upon, would work through. Nobody knows what matter is. If you ask a physicist, the question is, is it a wave? Is it a particle? Is it both? Is it neither? Is it a string? Is it a quantum field? Is it talcum powder? Is it raspberry jam? Physics doesn't know the meaning of matter. It's a complete array and if uh, of, of opinions. And if you don't know the meaning of matter, if you don't know what matter is, how can you know that causation is operating upon something? You can't know the mechanics of how causation works if you don't know what it's working upon. So these are other problems besides self-defeating problems that have to do with science and conceptual issues. The other one, besides causation and matter, the other of the big three is consciousness, the ultimate cosmic mystery. I mean, Harris mentioned somewhere that that consciousness is the mystery. We haven't solved the mind-body problem. There's the hard problem of consciousness that's out there. How is it that experience arises amidst a world of physical events? How is that possible? How does the world of experience relate to physical events? How does it connect with them? I mean, pinching some 
or prodding or poking some nerves is going to produce red? Why would that be? And prodding and poking and pinching some other nerves is going to create blue? How could something physical create something non-physical like experience? That's a question. Nobody knows the answer to it. So if you don't know what consciousness is, how can you argue that free will is or isn't the most fundamental attribute of consciousness, which is a mystery? So part of the critique of determinism has nothing to do with self-defeating arguments. It has to do with it's based on completely unfounded premises, which it leaps frogs over to make these cosmic conclusions, which ignores the state of science and the state of knowledge, and sweeps all these problems under the rug, scientifically and philosophically, as if they don't exist. These points you're making, I think, were the most persuasive for me, reading your book and, and thinking about the problem. I've, I, these are things I've thought about but haven't heard other people discuss at length, really, or maybe I haven't you know, looked for the discussions enough, but... That's not true. I'm familiar with uh, you know Hume's argument about causality, so I, I'm I'm aware that that like there are reasons to be skeptical of these things, and I'm aware that Newton's causal universe has been undermined in the last 150 years, and so I, I guess I am aware of these things. But I think undermining like the fundamental nature of causation as an inherent fundamental feature of the universe, and drawing our attention to the fact that we're still in the dark about consciousness, which is deeply intertwined and related to whatever free will is or isn't. So claiming victory on that score is, is premature. It shouldn't be that mysterious that there are mysteries. It's a familiar thing. And this is a, an area where we're well acquainted with mysteries. So some agnosticism is probably called for. Well, I would say that understates it a bit. I mean, Harris and Sapolsky and determinists are making claims. They're making global claims about how reality works. They're making global claims about what generates our behavior. The burden is upon the person making the claim to justify the premises. And when you say there are mysteries, I would characterize that a little bit differently. These are unfounded premises. If science doesn't know whether causation exists, if it doesn't know whether the universe operates by way of causation, You've got to answer that question, that mystery, if you like, before you can give a credible answer that the world is determined. You can't just leapfrog over the fact that science doesn't know. And the burden is upon determinists, not upon us to say, oh, yeah, everything is a mystery. Well, you could start with a scientific consensus. There's no consensus about these matters. None. The only thing there's a consensus on is that nobody understands the nature of consciousness. So the determinists are those who are making claims based on unfounded premises, without anyone, generally speaking, questioning their premises, at least in the popular discourse. So you can always say, as you said, there are mysteries, sure. And that, and that gives some reason to be agnostic at some level. But you can't found a whole global philosophy based on a bunch of unfounded premises about which science is in disagreement. Do you I know Sabine Hassenfelder? Have you seen her podcast? Say, say again? Sabine Hassenfelder, she has a podcast called something like Physics Without the Gobbledygook. No, terrific sounds interesting. podcast, terrific speaker, has great ideas. But when she hits free will, she says things like, if you're going against determinism, you're going against science. Well, she knows that's not true. You're going against her preferred interpretation of science in an area that's completely in dispute. There are those 
uh, quantum physicists who believe that the world is determined and those who believe there isn't and those who believe we just don't know the answer. And to give an honest appraisal, I think you got to say, I believe, if you're Sabine, that going against determinism is going against science. And here are my reasons. But audience, please understand, this is an unresolved scientific issue. And there's Nobel laureates on every side of this issue. So the answer hasn't yet been determined, no pun intended. And I'm giving you my best reasoning as to what that answer should be, about which there's no consensus. This is maybe a hard question, but so some of the arguments in, in these books, on both sides of the issue, in your book, in Sapolsky's book, I, I assume in Harris's book, depend on some, but not all, depend on surveying the state of a complicated Mm -hmm. and contentious scientific literature mm -hmm. and confusing and high-level scientific literature. And few of us, I think, are, are in a position to evaluate mm -hmm. a survey of that literature. So can you say something about why we should accept your description of, of the state of this literature and scientific knowledge over that of Sapolsky and Harris or what we might do to attempt to independently verify the state of, of these disciplines? Yeah, it's not hard to verify at all. We're not talking about the technical specifics of uh, uh, physical equations. We're talking about what is the state of science. And that's real simple. There's more than a couple dozen quantum theories. They disagree about everything. They disagree about the math. They disagree about the formal structures. They disagree about the predictions. And they disagree about what quantum science says about reality. Now, if you read, not, you don't even need to read a lot, a critique, an overall presentation of quantum science, that's where things are. There are three theories that are most discussed. Two of them are deterministic. One is probabilistic. You don't need to know the technicalities of those theories and their equations to know that there's no consensus whatsoever. And it's the heart, a dispute at the heart of quantum physics. And everybody concedes, unless they're in a moment of zealous advocacy, like Sabine was when she made that statement, everybody concedes that nobody knows the answer to the measurement problem. Nobody knows how spooky action works, the idea of non-locality that Einstein objected to. Nobody knows how it works, just affecting something here affects something, you know, 20 million universes away. But nobody has a clue as to how. So when you read this stuff, I think you can have a pretty good idea and be struck like I was about the, the number of fundamental cosmic questions that haven't been answered and that have to be answered before the free will question can be answered with any kind of plausibility. So, so I think it's easy to get a survey. Hey, here, here's a simple sort of subset. Both Harris and Sapolsky make claims about neuroscience studies. Harris gives three, cites three neuroscience studies for the proposition that our brains make our decisions before we're even aware of what we'll do next. That's almost literally his words, okay? And you look at those studies and they say nothing of the kind. You can determine that by just looking at the conclusion of the studies. They don't endorse determinism. The correlation rates they, they, they find are non-causal. They're in the 65, 70% range, which could be accounted for for any number of factors, but which prove that there's no causal connection between the neural impulses that they're measuring and the simple behaviors that they're recording. So in addition, Harris doesn't mention, and you can read about this the second you get into these studies, you can read a basic Wikipedia article, 
on Libet, L-I-B-E-T, the Libet test and all the tests that spin off from Libet. He was the first one in 1983 or 84. Started this whole line of endurance science studies. And you can read that the central measurement in the Libet studies has been discredited, discredited by numerous other studies for various reasons we could go into. It's a sort of subjective estimate of when the subject thinks they made a conscious decision. So the central measurement is discredited. Read Harris's sightings of those three studies and his one-sentence conclusions that it, they show or indicate or suggest that our brain makes our decisions. And then just go look at the Wikipedia article on the studies. You can also read the studies. They're all online. None of them endorse determinism, as I said. And you have other problems. What is that neural activity that happens before our finger moves? Well, there's a number of plausible theories that has nothing to do with determinism. It's preparatory activity is one of the theories. You have to prepare for making a decision. Another line of problems says that those aren't even decisions. Usually the instructions under those uh, neuroscience studies are wait till you have an urge to move your finger and then move it. That's not deliberative. That's not analogous to what college are you going to send your daughter to? I mean, it's the decision of the most rudimentary sort, assuming you want to call that a decision. And he also doesn't mention the fact that there's numerous contrary studies that support the opposite of the tests he cites, which don't even support determinism. As I said, their correlations provide evidence against any such causal connection. You don't have to be an expert in neuroscience to, to, to look at what he says about those three studies and to read the studies or look at any general a discussion about the state of the neuroscience. Can you elaborate on what, what you mean when you say that the the correlations provide evidence against determinism? My, my interpretation in reading them is that they provide weak evidence that might be consistent with either free will or determinism. They might be consistent with the idea, the obvious idea that if there is free will, it's free will that is constrained by a variety of influences and parameters. And this is maybe one of them. But it seems like it could also be one puzzle piece in a determinist picture. But why do you say that it provides evidence against determinism? Because the correlation rates are barely above a coin toss. If you want to get anywhere near a correlation rate sufficient to support determinism, you have to get to 99, 100%. Uh, determinism requires a necessary connection. Event, if event B happens, it was always preceded by A. If event A happens, it's always followed by B. So you should be at 100% or 99% operator error, machine technical capabilities and things like that. One of the studies that Harris cites says, look, this is barely above a coin toss, barely above a coin toss. You can't make any kind of inference of anything near causal connections. And in fact, that guy, uh, a test called Haynes, a study... Uh, by a guy named Haynes says you can't even conclude causation based on 100% correlations because correlations isn't causation. So every time I get up out of bed, the moon is orbiting the earth, but I'm not causing the moon to orbit the earth. It's a 100% correlation rate, not a coin toss. And one of the things determinants fail to distinguish is correlations from causation. So none of those neuroscience tests evidence determinism, they evidence that there's no causal relations insofar as those tests can determine based on the neural impulses that they're studying in that section of the brain. They evidence the lack of any causal connection. And the one study that Harris points to that's in the 80, 85% range, I took a, lot, a look at that study carefully because I thought, gee, that's compelling, 85%. At least that's getting up to somewhere. 
And then it turns out it was based on four subjects and they were epileptic and their electrodes were scattered and randomized about in different places. And it's all kinds of methodological problems. But if you want to cite a study based on four people for making grandiose metaphysical conclusions about the nature of human behavior, fine, go ahead. But that doesn't have anything to do with evidence that the world is determined. I heard an interesting thought experiment that casts doubt on determinism. I don't know if this is a common argument or tell me what you think about this. If the world is determined, if everything is at the Big Bang or whatever, every future event, there is some fact of the matter about what every future state of the universe will be like, because mm -hmm. it is determined, then in principle, mm -hmm. one should be able to, whether it's you know, practically possible or not, in principle, one should be able to provide a prediction of everything that's going to happen. And if such a, an equation were cracked, and I were to predict, okay, at this point in time on this day, you, Mr. Lawrence, are going to you know, raise your right hand. And then mm -hmm. I show you that. Mm -hmm. I think being a determinist requires you to believe very counterintuitively that you would somehow be unable to falsify that prediction by failing to raise your hand or raising your other hand or something like that, which seems totally insane to think. I don't know if there's something wrong with that argument, but it seems persuasive to me. Well, it, it's again, it's self-defeating that by determinist doctrine, you cannot make that prediction on any rational basis. It's just what physical events have caused you to believe. And if you see that the prediction is in accordance with that uh, belief, then you may be caused to think that there's a connection between what you believe and what happened in the world. But there isn't. There is if you're caused to believe that there is. So claims like that fall squarely into the category of you have no basis under determinist principles for saying anything like that. You have no rational basis because you've undermined the ability for any belief to be credible. It's just what physical events do. And by the way, what are these physical events? They're unthinking, right? They're insentient. They don't know what concepts are. They don't care about the truth. They're not even conscious, which raises a whole nother conceptual problem with determinism that I don't know if you've thought about, and it isn't mentioned in popular discourse, which is how is it that if the universe is physical, if everything that's going on right now is a byproduct of physical events banging into other physical events, transferring energy, how is it that these physical events are organizing themselves into complex conceptual patterns, patterns based on interlocking ideas? So there's no such thing in the laws of physics. There are no ideas. Ideas are just a byproduct of physical forces. And yet somehow, purely physical events are organizing themselves into language and logic and mathematics and these complex systems that lock together, not on the basis of physical products, but on the basis of ideas. How is that remotely possible? You know, it's sort of like the gorilla in the, uh, in the room for eternity who happens one day to type out Hamlet word for word. That's random. We're talking now not about a single event, but the universe is constantly organizing conceptual frameworks. That isn't possible if everything is physical and everything is determined. There's no such thing as conceptual frameworks. They are epiphenomenon byproducts of what unthinking physical events do. And you have to explain this if you're a determinist. Understand you have to be a physicalist. If is missing from the popular discourse. You don't have to be a physicalist, but whatever you have to be, you have to believe that the world is governed 
by the laws of physics. And the laws of physics govern physical events, whether you want to call them naturalism or, or materialism, whatever you want to call physicalism, call it whatever you want, but whatever the laws of physics govern, that's the basis for what's generated in the universe if you're a determinist. And determinists have to answer the question of how unthinking, physical, insentient, non-living forces that don't know what concepts are and wouldn't know a moral principle if it whacked them in the nose, how those kinds of unthinking things, oh my gosh, happen to be creating these complex conceptual frameworks. They're interlocking on the basis of ideas, on the basis of things that have no force or effect in the laws of physics. They're not part of the laws of physics. So whether you want to call the universe physical or naturalist or materialistic, determinists have to account for this fundamental conflict at the heart of determinism, that if the world really is something that obeys the laws of physics, let's call it physical for short, there's no rhyme or reason why or how conceptual frameworks could keep spinning out from these unthinking events. You've got to address that issue. It's missing from popular discourse, as are the most poignant criticisms of determinist doctrine. Does that make sense? I think so. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I might be having a little bit of a hard time with it. I my well, thought is determined not to understand it. <laughs> my thought is, is that if I were if I were a determinist, I'm trying to play devil's advocate and yeah. think what how I would want to respond to that, but I I don't unless you have like a good argument to show that determinism entails physicalism, I, I think the determinist can still say something like a la Wittgenstein, the the world is the totality of facts, not the totality of things. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I never claimed that only physical things exist, facts exist, mm -hmm. relationships mm -hmm. exist, conceptual things exist, and maybe they don't exist in the space of causes. They're not caused, mm -hmm. they just exist. Mm -hmm. Maybe that undermines determinism, but it doesn't seem like it supports free will. And maybe that's not the same thing. You could have aspects of the universe mm -hmm. that are not determined, but that are still mm -hmm. nevertheless not uh, free will. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, 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 and you have to deal with that question if your whole theory is based on the laws of physics governing the universe, whether they're physical or not. Determinists are going a step past Wittgenstein because, because they're saying you can speak about it. You know, his famous, we should speak about We must leave it in that, silence. We, that's right. That's right. Glad you, you said you, it. because I was going to say you I say it. I don't remember the whole quote, but I know what you're referencing. <laughs> well, that's the gist of it. What, um, we, we what we can't what we that. can't investigate or know about, we must pass over in silence or something like that. Exactly. And determinists are anything but silent. They write books. Sometimes <laughs> they write long ones. And and books that don't question the fundamental premises of determinist doctrine. They're completely ignored. And that's why I think it's important to have discussions like this. Let me go back to one thing, if I may. Please, of course. You mentioned something in a multiple point segment you were making about how the neuroscience tests show that, at the very least, that free will is subject to restrictions and constraints. And the answer to that is absolutely. Nobody's saying that free will is absolute, except for Sam Harris, who says uh, that to have free will, we would have to know about and control every factor that determines us. Now, putting aside the circular nature of that claim, he's already got us determined by every factor, and then now we have to control it. Uh, that absolute 
position about what free will would have to be uh, isn't justifiable. And he doesn't justify it. He throws it out there as if it's a given. So your point, yes, the science tests show that free will has limits and constraints and boundaries. Of course it does. We don't need the science test to say that. Free will can't operate in a vacuum. It operates in circumstances, and circumstances are limits. They, 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 they circumscribe our options. That doesn't mean they take away free will. It means the opposite. They, they permit free will to have opportunities and options. Harris really gets it in reverse. Being limited doesn't stop free will. It permits free will to operate. It needs to have boundaries to push against. So the point you made, I wanted to go back to because it's really important. If you think that that we need the neuroscience test, which you don't, to, 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 to show us that at the very least free will is constrained, absolutely stipulated. There's no question about it. And determinists often make these straw man arguments about how free will has to be absolute without saying why. Why can't free will function under limited circumstances? The fact that that amnesia, that uh, some people have amnesia, okay. There, there are neurophysiological conditions that dampen free will. It certainly doesn't prove that free will doesn't exist. It proves that it's limited and that it's subject to circumstances and, and constraints, as you said, the science tests show. And I agree. They're not needed to show that. I, I don't think that arguing against that seems like an irresponsible way to argue against free will because it seems, I could be wrong, but it seems like anyone who believes in free will would... Mm -hmm not want to deny that i can't imagine wanting to deny that there are limits and constraints to your operation of free will well, harris does as i say he says almost literally paraphrased in order to, what would it take to have free will you'd have to know about and control all of the factors that determine us all of them and then he goes into a whole bunch of factors biology neurophysiology birth circumstances genes etc cetera, etc cetera. So he does believe that, and he says that, and he maintains that free will has to be omniscient and omnipotent. It has to have control over everything that would otherwise determine us, which is, which is a really astounding argument when you think about it, especially when you don't say why. Why can't free will be limited? Why can't it just be the simple common sense notion that we function in a world that limits us and constrains us and our capacity capacities as a human being are limited by our biology and our genes and so forth. Those are influences. Sapolsky also, he confuses influences with control. There's no distinction. If something influences us, boom, it controls us. If judges smell bad things in their courtroom and they issue harsher sentences than otherwise, or 70% of them do, what does that have to do with free will? How is that even remotely evidence that we're determined? Some judges do, some judges don't. How about this? We're biological organisms. We have a bodily platform. We get irritated when certain things are in the environment, things which give us signals in a bio biological sense, a warning sign that something's a bit off, something smells bad. Is there some decay? Is there some bacteria? Is there a fire? That's why people get irritated and, and get harsher. And purely biological. This is nothing about free will because... We operate on the basis of a biological platform where we need those signals. I think in a lot of ways, Sapolsky is aware of that. He <laughs> makes maybe in some ways a less absolutist argument. I mean, he ends most of his chapters yes, surveying this evidence true. saying, does this show that there's no free will? No. 
Uh, and I think, you know, I think his, his point at the end is to say, add it all up and it casts radical doubt. Mm-hmm. Not that it's a slam dunk or that any particular line of evidence is even particularly great. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a lot of reason to question and you've given a lot of them, but want to make sure we're fair to Sapolsky that he, he I don't I don't think he takes the, those judge experiments as a knockdown argument or even that whole line of experimentation. That is absolutely true. And I'm saying it's no evidence whatsoever that you're adding to anything. And and his conclusions are a little bit more solid than you suggest. It's absolutely true what you say all along the way. With a lot of integrity, he's questioning all of this stuff and saying, well, that doesn't necessarily mean anything of its own, but you got this and you got this and you got this. What he doesn't do is tie together all the pieces. You can say that it all adds up to we're determined. You can also say that all of this is based on those unfounded premises that we've talking about. What, what is he adding up from science when we don't know what matter is and we don't know if causation exists and we don't know if the world is deterministic? What exactly is he adding up? And if we only have correlations like 70% of the judges are more this than that, what exactly is he adding up? He's not adding up any evidence of causation. He's spinning out stories about how free will is constrained under various circumstances. This is what people have to really understand because he's a smart, intelligent guy and he's got so much knowledge, but it's knowledge of specific categories and how general groups of behavior that's exhibited over a whole range of people. It has nothing to do with identifying causes about how specific people behave in specific circumstances caused by specific physical factors. There's nothing about that to add up because there's no such evidence. So I don't know what he thinks he's adding up. He's adding up a bunch of ragtag ideas about trends, tendencies, group behavior, within which there's all kinds of variants. He's not adding up anything. He's not adding up any uh, anything about what matter is, what governs the universe, what, what causation works through. All of these things are unknown. And I think they really have to be disclosed in any conscientious discussion. You can say you can add it all up, but you better have a discussion about what you're adding up. He's not adding up anything. But anecdotes, biological anecdotes, and ignoring the hard science and the big scientific picture. I mean, that's a, that's a weird kind of addition. So we've talked a lot about problems with determinism. I take it you are a positive believer in free will while acknowledging that it has issues. So briefly, can you say, what do, do you have a positive case for the existence of free will? Or, you know, or at least some starting point about why we should take it seriously? I put it this way. I'm a free will believer with a lot of caveats because free will is not the ideal candidate. As you say, it's, it seems to conflict with the physical universe, with the, with the tradition of notion of science. Nobody can prove it exists. People argue that it's incoherent. I don't think that's true, but there's questions about its coherence. It's not an ideal candidate, but there's no other candidate to vote for. It's like an election. You know, you're voting against unqualified candidates, not for the ideal one. Free will isn't the ideal candidate. And what I think is that it's not the ideal candidate because there isn't one. There isn't one under the current conceptual paradigm of reality. We're looking at reality through a framework. It's progressed since Newton. It's different from Newton. And there's going to be another one in two or 300 years or 500 years. I don't think a paradigm exists by which this question can be answered. 
I think that's the really honest way to appraise this thing. The answers require resolution of questions that we don't have. We can't solve the mind-body problem. We don't know how life arises from matter. We don't know how consciousness arises from life. We don't know how the universe originated or if there was something before. We don't know whether it will end. We can't solve the, the wave-particle problem or the central problem of measurement in quantum mechanics. So, so I think the global view really has to be taken seriously, that what our state of the knowledge and the paradigm that we have, which is what are the relations among events, causal, volitional, probabilistic, random, they're not getting the job done. And what I really believe is that the problem can't be solved. None of these problems can be solved. That's why they've been around so long, uh, because we're missing something. We need what's going to resolve the tension between general relativity and quantum mechanics. So I think the answer is going to lie in the future, and it's not going to be something that we are familiar with now because we're limited to the conceptual paradigm. In the meantime, uh, I don't mean to kick the ball down the field or duck the issue. Um, uh, it's the only candidate that makes any sense. And by the way, it also has some added benefits, right? It's the way we live. We live with the conviction we have free will. And it's the only thing, it's the only candidate that gives us a foundation for morality and responsibility and changing our lives and bettering the world. It's the only candidate that supports the foundation on which any of those things to consist, any of those things to exist. That's a pretty attractive thing. Determinism, we're perpetual victims. We don't control our thoughts. We don't control our actions. We can't effectuate anything. So I'm voting against the most unlikely of unqualified candidates, not for the ideal one. And I, I think that's the best way I can put where I am on the issue and what? where I think people should be if, if they put it all together. I, I don't think I would have described it that clearly with the background evidence. But I think even prior to reading your book, the way I was thinking about my perspective is somewhat unsettled, somewhat agnostic, but heavily leaning towards mm -hmm. free will. I probably still feel that way, maybe with some new words to describe it. Uh, what kind of evidence do you think, to, to, to be fair to the other candidate, what kinds of evidence or arguments do you think would weaken the case for free will? Well, it's, it's a very good question. I've thought about it a lot because you can't provide any evidence of free will to a determinist. If you say that there's evidence A or evidence B, um, a determinist will say, yeah, but you are determined to think that. See, they can pull out the you are determined to think that when it's advantageous, but they don't apply it to themselves. So there's no evidence that the world is determined that could weaken the free will argument because we have no basis on which to say that if all of our thoughts are compelled and what we believe is compelled by physical forces. So in other words, even if you had this perfect prediction machine that Harris throws out there where everything we think and do is recorded by a machine a few seconds before we do it, even that would say nothing about whether we have free will. Because again, you, you're saying that your belief, in, if, if everything, is beyond our control, if what we think comes from external forces, then all of our beliefs, whether it's about the machine, about the findings, about the needle that's showing all of this, are discredited. We have no basis on which to trust any of our beliefs if they're outside of our control and we're being forced to believe them. And that, that, that prediction machine is really 
a hypothetical illustration, a cartoon of a self-defeating claim. You could never know that there was such a machine or that's what its findings were, or if there were operator error. You would never know it because the findings of the machine take away all truth, all reason, and discredit the idea that there's such a, a machine. So that wouldn't be proof. And if that isn't proof against free will, what would, what would you want to accept? I mean, no matter how strongly you correlate brain functions to free will, which can't be correlated very strongly, as we, we talked about, 60%, 70%, many studies saying, yeah, but that comes from other sources that, or a combination of sources. It's not even about where uh, these tests think the sources are, say any number of other tests. E even that uh, can't dampen anything about free will, if the perfect prediction machine can't. My view, I think, is conceptually, I have a hard time imagining a coherent line of evidence that would debunk free will. But I think I can easily think of lines of evidence mm -hmm. that would show that its scope is far less than we think it is. I, I imagine yes, you, I you'd concede that like that, that ex exactly what the scope of free will is, is hugely up for debate. And we, we see in everyday life, varying degrees of scope, and we have very common sense, moral and practical concepts that, affect how much we think, you know, a, a baby or a small child or an impair, a person impaired by alcohol is acting differently than like a paradigmatically mm -hmm. sane and intelligent person deliberating under ideal circumstances. There's a big difference there. And we, and we might mm -hmm. learn mm -hmm. through various forms of experiments that the amount of free will we think we have is way, 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 way less than we think. And to be fair to Sapolsky, he does acknowledge that if I can convince you of that, that's good enough for me. You're referring back to a point that I wanted to highlight that you mentioned in connection with the neuroscience studies, which is that we are limited, we are bounded, free yes. will can operate in a vacuum, and we may find out that there were a huge number of influence that we have no awareness of yes. as science and philosophy and psychology advance, and that's undoubtedly true. The question is whether limits, constraints, boundaries extinguish free will. And there's no reason to believe that they do. There's no logical reason why they should. Yeah, that's much harder for me to imagine. I can imagine thinking that, you know, my, my capacity for free will, let's just to put silly numbers on it, maybe accounts for 50% of my activity. That's what I believe. And I can imagine learning, oh, you know, it's 40, ooh, it's 30. It's And, and it may be asymptoting down to like 5%. You know, even if it were 5%, that is probably... My controlling my actions 5% is probably still a more important cause of my behavior than any other particular thing and a good reason to assign responsibility to my actions. But don't you think that there's a fluctuating value in all of that? Yes, I, mean, I think it probably depends radically on the circumstances of the day, of the time of the day, of, of every single thing. That's I wanted to stipulate that the numbers are silly. It's not going to be a static number that we find out. It's it's going to be learning that under certain circumstances, but maybe the fluctuation happens in a smaller range than I would like to believe. You know, I, it would, there's something appealing about a kind of mm -hmm. everyone is a person of self-made spirit who creates themselves and is responsible for mm -hmm. everything. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's, I think, mm -hmm. Sapolsky and plenty of others before him give plenty of reasons to, to doubt that story. But I don't think that's a very popular story, even among normal free will advocates anyway. So I'm not sure if it's relevant.
Well, and the whole idea between uh, about psychology and treatment and self-improvement is the idea that being aware of these limitations changes the limitations themselves. So, uh, Sapolsky says that, not realizing, I suppose, that it flatly contradicts determinist principles. He proudly boasts throughout the book, we can change. And the answer to that is, of course we can. But the question is, what's changing us? And according to you, Sapolsky, it's biological processes mixed with the environment. We're not changing anything. When you say we, quote unquote, who's the we? Biology and environment is really what he has to say. So the point being that if you don't, if you're not a determinist like me and perhaps you, uh, depending on what you're influenced by, right, at any given moment, um, you can say that our influences fluctuate and we're in circumstances where we have more or less free will. And uh, therefore, uh, influence, no matter how overpowering, anesthesia doesn't rule out free will, but it's going to knock you out just like a brutal conk on the head that doesn't have anything to do with free will and nor do his tests. So again, what are you adding up? What's he adding up? He's adding up a bunch of influences that, as you say, will have more or less effect and sometimes overpowering effect that extinguishes free will for various periods of time. Or if you've got some mental dysfunction for the rest of your life, none of that proves there isn't free will. But I agree with you that we may find out that the scope of what we think is in the domain of our free will is far more limited than we think. On the other hand, self-awareness, which if you're not a determinist, isn't generated by physical forces, changes the game. It changes the equation. Now you're outside the universe of what's determining you. As long as you're not a determinist, you can make that claim. And now you're influencing what determines you, which is always the case. I mean, we're always influencing our influences. I shouldn't say always because there's things we can't like biology, so I'll cut that one back. But a large swath of what we think we're determined by are things that we influence. If we have an, a, a compulsion, we can seek help and change it. If we're addicted to tobacco, we can go to an interventionist uh, organization and change what was formerly determining us. And those are just trivial examples of all kinds of areas of our life where awareness becomes a new factor, as long as you're not a determinist and you think that isn't, that isn't generated by physical forces. If you think it is, then we can't change anything. And so what is, is Sapolsky talking about when he says we can change? Is this as if that's bestowing some kind of freedom or prerogative on us? No, we can't change. We, quote unquote, and who knows how you would define that, change if physical forces were predetermined that we would recognize something called a change, which is a thought that was also predetermined. Have you or, or had the opportunity or would you do a debate with either Sapolsky or Harris? Or are they aware of your work? I don't know. I have no idea. Sure. Why not? I mean, they really need to answer whether it's in front of me or somebody else or they audience. They have to address these issues. It's just not credible to claim that determinism is true without questioning what that's based on, the foundations, not trends or judges smelling things or flashing faces of other races triggering the amygdala. None of that nonsense has anything to do with free will. And they've got to confront those issues. They've got to confront the issues of influence versus control. The fact that we don't know if causation exists, we can't define it, et cetera, et cetera. As we've been discussing, they have to address these foundational 
problems and unfounded premises, whether it's to me or you or somebody else, they got to address it because otherwise they're misrepresenting the subject. I say misrepresenting, that's an inflammatory word, but I don't mean it in the sense of intentional evil deceptiveness. I mean it in the sense that they're not giving an accurate portrayal of how a claim about free will or determinism fits within science and human knowledge and the mysteries of the cosmos. It's just not accurately represented to people who haven't spent a lot of time trying to put all the pieces together. What book would you recommend as a nice compliment to yours? If you're interested in the self-defeating argument, there's a fantastic book that I just discovered by a guy named Jim Slagle, who's a philosophy professor, I think, in Oregon. I think it's called The Epistemological Skyhook, which is a sort of odd, random title that probably doesn't register anything. It's a fantastic book in plain English about contradictory claims and why determinism makes no sense and is incoherent. And he lays out the type of contradictory claims, the kind of distinction that you are making. They're claims that contradict themselves logically. They're claims that contradict themselves because you're assuming something by making the claim. You're making an argument about it's a little bit different. And you're right, it is. Just a different category of self-defeating claim. That is a terrific book. Jim Slagle, The Epistemological Skyhook, the skyhook, by the way, is the idea that you can't make any of these claims unless you've got a skyhook coming down outside the system of determinism using ideas and concepts. It's the opposite of a crane. You're trying to build ideas up from purely unthinking physical events. You can never get there because they're not part of the laws of physics. So those are the two images he's got going. I the skyhook that. that doesn't exist under materialism and building things up from physical facts, which doesn't get you anywhere whether determinism or free will, because there's no un there's no thinking subject to get anywhere. You've recently updated your book. Is the updated version available for purchase or, or download? Yeah, the updated version is available. It took the original version, which was a critique of Sam Harris's free will, and incorporated Sapolsky's book, which is the first popular addressing of the subject in 10 or 12 years since Harris's book, and incorporated them both. Uh, where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? I have a website called biochemicalrobots.com. That comes from a phrase out of Sam Harris's book that we are biochemical robots. Our thoughts are pre-programmed, etc. Including the idea that we're biochemical robots. We've now all become good students of self-defeating claims. And I was blown away when I first learned them. It took a while to wrap my brain cells around them. So it's called biochemicalrobots.com. And, and there's email. You can email me there. And, and I have a, uh, a presence on Instagram and Instacart. Always confuse the two. And Twitter, <laughs> all of those things where the handles are different based on the, you know, the format. You want people to send you some groceries on Instacart? Sure. If it's pizza, why my, not? <laughs> my guest today has been David Lawrence. And his book, once again, is Debunking Determinism. Robert Sapolsky, Sam Harris, and the Crusade Against Free Will. David, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.